We're going to look at the two witnesses in Revelation 11. So if you would open your Bibles, that's where we will be. Revelation chapter 11. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, but it's pretty similar to the ESV, if you have that, or the, um, the New King James. Chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Verse 1, there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple. And do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them, in this manner he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three days and a half and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. And after the three and a half days... Three days and a half, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon all those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven, and the cloud and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Father, you have said that about this book, the one reading and those hearing the words of the prophecy of this book will receive a blessing. We pray that uh, you would bless us this morning. And may we be able to draw nearer to you. As a result, come to know you better. So honor you. What we think what we say, what we do. In Christ's name, amen. A number of years ago, um, my sister-in-law bore a stillborn baby. Um, We were talking over the phone uh, a few nights later, and she asked me what should her response be. And before I could answer very much, she said what her response was. And she, she went on to explain, I know I'm saved and I'll be with God in eternity, but how am I supposed to be motivated to live each day now? How do I know that God won't take my other two children or take my husband? So I was brought up believing, she said, that when you get married, my children will grow up and uh, they'll get married and you'll have grandchildren, but now my little baby girl is gone. I have no guarantee from God that he won't take me or other members of my family. It's like uh, she was talking as if she were a duck in a shooting gallery. When was she going to be shot or someone else in her 
family. Why shouldn't she be paralyzed by fear? Every day, the same thing or something like it might happen again in her family. Why shouldn't such fear paralyze us? Many of us have experienced the death of relatives or other cataclysmic situations in our lives. Why shouldn't that fear paralyze us? Well, in the book of Revelation, there were believers undergoing trials, including persecution, and there was plenty to fear. Listen to the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9 to the church of Smyrna. In verse 8, Jesus says, The first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear. And he said that already in chapter 1 to John. He repeats it. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So there's going to be suffering. He says, don't fear it. And by the way, what's the basis of that? I wish I could just preach or teach on this text for a while. He introduces himself, notice in verse 8, as the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. He's suffered, but he's overcome it. And he's now saying, on your, the basis of your identification and union with me, you're going to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, Revelation 14, 4. You're going to suffer, maybe even to death, but you're going to overcome it. Do not fear, therefore. So, verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. He who has near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death, eternal spiritual separation from God. So there were people in Asia Minor then, in the first century, suffering persecution for their witness for Christ. Sometimes suffering in other ways, as we do today. There was plenty to fear. Though they may have been assured of their eternal salvation, how could they overcome their fear? of various things happening to them physically in their daily lives. John writes our passage in chapter 11 to answer to a significant degree that question. And let's see how that answer begins in verses 1 to 2. There was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations... And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now the main point of these two verses is this. God's presence with us protects us spiritually through suffering. Now if you look at those two verses, you might respond and say, where in the world does it say that? It's talking about measuring a temple, an outer court. Boy, that... That's what you might call allegory, reading in some kind of spiritual idea about God protecting us. There doesn't seem to be anything there about that. I want to spend much of the rest of our time showing, in fact, that that is what is involved in our passage. Of course, our passage deals with, um, this is a classic place to debate. Is the temple literal? Is it not? Are the two witnesses individuals or are they something else? Individuals that breathe fire and and, uh, uh, are able to stop the rain and and, and turn waters into blood, who have supernatural prophetic powers. As we look at the question on the temple, let's try to answer that first. 
Verse 1, those giving me a measuring rod like a staff, someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it, that is, in the temple. Is the temple an architectural structure that's going to be built at this time of tribulation uh, at a yet future time? There are a number of uh, commentators and many, many people in our churches in the Western world and elsewhere who believe that this is part of a prediction that there will be a physical architectural temple on the earth again. There are others who think, no, this probably is speaking of a temple that is spiritual. And so, but that, that's more the minority of commentators and Christians. Many just take it as, they take it at face value. Just interpret normally, which is usually literally. And what does literal mean? Well, that, that's a fuzzy word, but usually it means that if uh, you have a passage that's speaking of something like a temple or individual prophets, you take it at face value. And you, you, you see that, that the language corresponds to physical reality, physical temple, physical individual prophets. That, that's a general rough, real rough definition of, of literal. Now, one of the best ways to try to understand this passage is... The great rule, let Scripture interpret Scripture. We have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, not let our preconceptions or um, what looks to be, we read the passage at face value. The best way to read the passage at face value is to see how is Scripture elsewhere forming our passage in the immediate context and the broader context, as we saw last night with Daniel 2, helping us understand that verse 1 is programmatically talking about a symbolic interpretation, uh, communication in the book of Revelation. So let's let Scripture interpret Scripture on this issue of the temple. Let's do a word study. Not just of the word temple, but temple of God. In Greek, temple of God, for some some of you uh, know Greek, it is neos to theu. But um, all that translates into is temple of God. The very same exact phrase occurs about nine times in the New Testament. Now, I think it would be important to see how it's used. And then we're going to see how it's used in the book of Revelation. So, for example... Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you're the temple of God? Naos. Verse 17 of chapter 3. If anyone corrupts or destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Speaking of the church in both cases. And again, the end of verse 17 of chapter 3. For uh, the temple of God is holy. Speaking of the Corinthians. He's not talking of an architectural temple here. Likewise, in chapter 6, in verse 16, he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Was this an architectural structure he's talking about? Look at the last part of verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. In Revelation 3.12, we come to our own book, and we find temple of God there. In Revelation 3.12, We find this statement, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. Was that talking about 
that we're going to become like Lot's wife, but in a positive sense, we're going to become literal temple, literal, literal pillars. We're going to be literal in that way? No. So the temple must not be literal. It must refer to something else. That is the people of God. Now, of course, the phrase temple of God occurs in our passage, but it also occurs at the end of our passage. Look at the end of chapter 11. Verse 19, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder, earthquake, and a great tribulation. It's a heavenly reality. It is not, there's not an architectural uh, a structure in heaven. Now, there is one other use of temple of God I haven't mentioned. It's in the Gospels, Matthew 26, 61, where the false witnesses at the trial of Jesus say, he said he was able to destroy the temple of God and raise it up. Well, they were false witnesses. First of all, because they were literal interpreters, that raising up the temple was speaking of a literal temple. It wasn't, as we'll see. That's very intriguing, isn't it? They were also false witnesses because... Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. It was the Jews. John 2, Jesus says, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. There's the true uh, narrative there. Uh, They were going to be the destroyers. And it then says at the end of John 2, in that narrative, that he was speaking of the temple of his body. His resurrection body is the beginning of the temple. Everything to which the temple pointed, the presence of God. John 1.14 said, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It templed. I hate making nouns in the verbs, but it templed among us and we beheld his glory. See, the glory's in the temple. So Jesus was the beginning of the temple in his ministry. Forgiveness revolved around him. They kill him. He can't keep a good temple man down. He pops right back up in resurrection irresistibly in in the form of an escalated new end-time temple. And when we identify with him, we become part of that temple. As Acts 2 says, tongues of fire come down on the people. And tongues of fire from Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 30 and in some passages in early Jewish writings that meditate on those passages, tongues of fire, guess what? is the presence of God in his holy temple, the theophonic, fiery presence of God. And when it descends in Acts 2, he's building people into the temple because of their identification with Jesus Christ. Since Jesus is the temple, so are we. So Christians are a part of the true temple because they're a part of Christ who is that true temple. And if we start looking just at the use of Temple, that word naos in the book of Revelation, outside of our passage, it's used 13 times. Not once is it an architectural temple. It's either referring to the temple in heaven, as we saw, or it's referring to um, believers. You remember that uh, chapter 1 and verses 11 to 20 refers to lampstands, and those lampstands are the church. Where does that image come from? Lampstands were in the holy place, outside the Holy of Holies, and uh, uh, and then after uh, 
you get holy of holies, holy place where the lampstands were, and then the outer court. It is affirming they're part of the temple. And then, likewise, um, if, if you look at these uses, they're, they're all non-architectural in the book of Revelation. Um, we've already seen in chapter 3 that uh, it is a reference to something other than a literal temple, but believers being in a temple, which is in God's presence. And very interestingly, in chapter uh, 21, verse 22, it says, in the new heavens and earth, there will be no temple. That is no architectural temple. What will there be? It says, because God and the Lamb are the temple. There we get again the identification of God and the Lamb as being the temple. That's where the presence of God is. That's what the Old Testament temple ultimately meant. It was really, what made it the temple was God's glorious presence in the Holy of Holies. So the temple is the community of God in the presence of the tabernacling God. The idea is God is in heaven where his temple is. The center of gravity is shifted to heaven where Jesus is. But the Holy Spirit comes down, and when we trust in him, we partake of that temple presence. Now, so I think that it is speaking of the church as the temple of God. And we've, I've tried to let Scripture interpret Scripture, how Paul uses it, how Jesus uses it, and especially how Revelation uses it. The only question will be chapter 11 and verse 1. I think we need to interpret it in the light of the other uses, and we'll see that that conforms to our further explanation of this passage. Now the altar, notice the altar is mentioned in verse 1, that was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. The altar, what is that about? Last night, Tom Schreiner spoke about the altar, and I think we need to look at that again, chapter 6 and verses 9 through 10. In verse 9 of chapter 6, it says that Jesus broke the fifth seal, um, and he saw, or I saw, I, John, saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, O Lord, holy and true, how long will you refrain from judging our persecutors? Now the altar here certainly has this background in the altar of the temple. So we're in the realm of the temple again. There were two altars, one in the courtyard when the animal was slain, and then uh, on the Day of Atonement that blood would be taken to an altar in the vicinity of the Holy of Holies, probably right outside the curtain, and then taken in by the high priest and sprinkled over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant uh, to indicate uh, a substitutionary sacrifice for the people. Um, It's hard to know which altar is in mind here. Perhaps it's that inner altar, but it doesn't matter because it's the blood from the outer altar. So whichever one one chooses, they're, they're connected. But what's the point here? Christians worship, they're in the temple, right? How do they worship in the temple? By the ministry of the altar. They're, they are priests, but they're no longer priests offering sacrifices separate from themselves that are animals. They offer themselves. They follow the lamb wherever he goes, just as he offered himself. Though, of course, their offering is not substitutionary, but it's sacrificial in the sense that they're sacrificing their lives on the altar of the gospel for the Lord. That's an amazing worship in the temple of God, which is in the presence 
of God. In fact, they're called priests, aren't they? Remember chapter 1 and verse 6, they're a kingdom of priests. Chapter 5 and verse 10, they're a kingdom of priests. And you saw today in chapter 7 that they worship in the temple as priests, the heavenly temple. So Revelation 11, 1 through 2 is a picture of Christians worshiping in the temple, in that sense being a part of it with their altar ministry. They're sacrificing. Wherever we go, you see we're part of the temple and we're to sacrifice. I mean, maybe you're a student and the whole class is cheating. And if you don't cheat, you're going to make an F. What are you going to do? You're going to suffer? Maybe no one will ever find out. You're going to suffer? You're going to sacrifice yourself at the altar? Or become conformed to the world? If you're a business person, an accountant, I knew an accountant at a car dealership. The boss said one year, no more uh, um, doing the books in an honest way. We've had a bad year this year. We're going to cook the books. We're going to doctor them. He said, well, I can't do that. He said, well, I understand. You're an honest fellow, but just this one year to help us out, it'll help you too. He says, I can't do that because he was a Christian. And uh, the boss said, you can't have your job then. He was fired. I don't know how long it took him to get another job. He was in the church we were in. He eventually did. But he sacrificed himself on the altar. We could reproduce those examples again and again and again. When are you faced with compromise? When you don't compromise, you're a witness to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.5, likewise says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And if you go on and read in 1 Peter 2, the point is missions. That God's glorious knowledge of God would be spread. Even the city, look at verse 2, leave out the court which is outside the temple, do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Is that the literal city? Could be. But I think since we've already seen that the altar and the temple um, are figurative, symbolic, that like, likewise so is the city. Why would I say that further? Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. Chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 12, again says, He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So there we have it. Temple of my God. He'll not go out from it anymore. I'll write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. So... Just as Jesus is true Israel and true Jerusalem, when they identify with him, they become true Jerusalem. I think Tom Schreiner even this morning mentioned Isaiah 49.3, speaking of the servant Jesus Christ. You are my servant Israel. Speaking of the servant as Israel. And so all of the real estate terms like Israel, throne of David, Jerusalem, all of these real estate terms come sucked up into Jesus. He represents all of the perfection of what Israel, Jerusalem, and the throne of David should have been. Chapter 21 and verse 2 in the following talks about the city. And there, if I had enough time, which I don't, um, we would say that the city is the people of God. Now, we should expect that the temple, the altar, 
And even the city are symbolic. Why? Because of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. This is right uh, in the middle of this symbolic section from 4.1 all the way to 22.5. And you'll remember that um, that word in chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and he asemanon. That's that Greek word. He sent, some translate communicated or made known, but we saw that it should be translated as communicate by symbols. Instead of interpreting this book literally, unless you're forced to interpret it figuratively, we saw you, the programmatic statement here is saying, interpret this book figuratively, unless you're forced to interpret more literally. That doesn't mean everything is figurative, but we're to expect it, and so that fits right in with what we're talking about here. Now, if I could get someone back there to get me back to the beginning again, I would appreciate it. Thank you. That would be wonderful. So the temple, the altar, and the city symbolize we who are Christians. As Christians are part of the spiritual temple. But why are we said to be part of a temple? Why are we said to be worshiping at its altar? As I've already said... The altar ministry is a sacrificial ministry. And besides uh, 1 Peter 2, which is a parallel, listen to Romans 12.1. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the reason we're said to be part of a temple and worshiping in its altar is to stress that God's presence resides continually and always with us. That's the point of the temple. God's presence is in the temple, and he is with us. And remember my main idea that sounded so strange at the beginning? That main idea? Um, God's presence with us now protects us spiritually through suffering. Now, we'll see what the suffering is, but we've already seen that the altar ministry involves suffering, right? Sacrifice. So God's presence with us secures us, protects us through Suffering. But what does it mean that they're measured? We haven't talked about that measuring yet. Look at chapter 11 and verse 1. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. Well, I think what it means is that God is guaranteeing that His saving presence will never be taken away from all those who are measured. His presence as a temple will always be with them. It's measured. Their altar ministry, no matter what they suffer in sacrificing themselves as priests, is measured. It's sealed, as Tom Schreiner said. That is, we will not lose God's presence even when we lose our physical bodies or they suffer. And likewise... We ourselves, we who worship in it, we are secured. That is, God's saving presence is secured with us. It will never be taken away. This is what we call the preservation of the saints by God sovereignly that leads to the perseverance of the saints. He's guaranteeing our salvation, to put it bluntly. Now, if you were to look at chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, the new Jerusalem which there is identified as the people of God, is also measured. 
what's that talking about? Well, in the new heavens and earth, the new physical heavens and earth, not only does God guarantee that he will never take away his saving presence from our spirits or souls, he will not take it away from our bodily, our bodily existence. Even our bodies then are sealed. But not in this interim period. It's only our spirits. Now, this measuring, a number of commentators agree, I'm not offering anything unique or new here. It comes from Ezekiel 40 to 48 that Thomas Schreiner talked about. You see, there's a lot of interweaving uh, uh, from the book of Revelation. I hope you can see that from the messages that uh, Tom Schreiner and I are giving where there's a little bit of Oprah Over 50 times in Ezekiel 40 to 48, the verb and noun for measure is used. And it's to secure that temple in the end time future. In fact, in Ezekiel 43, Ezekiel has said... I'm going to give you a rod of measuring. Literally a reed of measuring. And literally our passage says that was given me a reed like a staff. And someone said, rise and measure. Probably an allusion to that very specific text in Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 3. But now we've got a problem in verse 2 because verse 2 says that not all of the temple is measured. Look at it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. What does this mean? Does it mean that part of our spirit is measured and part of it isn't? and Kind of break up your soul into some parts or something? What in the world does it mean? The outside court of the temple could symbolize the false church, the pseudo-church that we talked about partly last night, as distinguished from the true church. The true church is measured, its saving presence is guaranteed, God's saving presence with it, but those who are pseudo, no. They're, they're outside the, 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 um, the, the true temple. They're in the outer court. And this is a possibility. But I think that there's another view that I, I think may be better. That the outside court symbolizes the true church during the church age, as does the inner part of the temple. How can we make sense of that? The outer court represents the physical side of the church. The inner is our soul, our spirit. So God, you see, in verse 1 already, you, you can know that God wouldn't measure our physical bodies because that's part of our ministry. Our ministry is to sacrifice ourselves in various social, economic, uh, uh, in different ways, and physically. So God's not securing that. He doesn't want to secure that. He wants us to know that he's not securing that because that's our ministry, to offer ourselves as a sacrifice for the gospel in whatever ways that we can, especially when compromise comes, whether it's due to persecution or social uh, compromise in the classroom or in business whatever it may be. may even be marrying a maid who's an unbeliever. Temptations to do that. And so it's interesting in verse 1, it's not just the temple that's measured. It's not just we who are measured. The altar is measured. So what, what God is doing there is he is saying, I've called you to be a sacrificial priest, and I'm going to enable you to do that. I'm going to guarantee if you're my part of my true people, you will do that because my saving presence will be with you. 
Suffering is described further in the last part of verse 2. Look at it. To leave out the court which is outside the temple, do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. They'll tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. They'll tread underfoot. It's an image of suffering. Now, this takes place during a tribulation. And yet it says, notice, 42 months, that's three and a half years. When is it? Many people say, well, that's a part, that's a half of the tribulation, the great seven-year tribulation that is to come. Maybe. You would be taking the number literally at that point. And I think the numbers, as I've already said, the general approach is to take things symbolically. But I think if we turn to chapter 12, we'll see what the three and a half years are. Look at chapter 12 with me. Remember in verse 2, a woman was with child. I think it's, of course, Mary, but it's the covenant community, the Messianic covenant community. She cried out being in labor and pain and to give birth. And the devil opposes her, it says. Notice the middle of verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's one of the quickest snapshots I've ever seen of the birth and the ministry and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only John under inspiration could uh, summarize it. I I could never write that briefly. And so um, that's a part of the sinful, corrupt world we live in as writers. My books do serve as good um, doorstops. Get that. Um, But now I want you to notice verse 6. After the child is caught up to the throne, and the woman, the covenant community, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she might be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Now, that commences, that three and a half year period commences right at Jesus' resurrection and exaltation. Though some would say, no, it doesn't. There's a big temporal valley between verse 5 and verse 6, so that when Christ goes up to his throne in heaven, the woman is literal Israel, and she flees into the wilderness after the church is taken from the earth by rapture, and Israel's time's on the earth again, and so then she undergoes tribulation. She's in a wilderness. So there's this multi-thousand-year valley here, demanded by that particular view. I I would say that a natural reading here would see that the three and a half years, the woman representing the covenant community, the three and a half years start right after Jesus ascends to his throne. And does it only last for three and a half years? It ends like maybe in 40 or 41 A.D.? Well, of course not. This is a, these are explaining realities that occur throughout the church age. So I think that this is a text more probably arguing that the three and a half years is symbolic and commences right when Jesus goes to the throne and continues right toward the end of the church age. So in our passage, when the city suffers, that is uh, the people of God, and it's tread under uh, foot for 42 months, that's the church age, I think. And, and we've seen that numbers are, are figurative, and that, that makes sense. So our main point, again, let me state it. 
so far in verses 1 to 2 that God's presence with us protects us spiritually through suffering. That's verses 1 through 2. I hope it makes a little more sense now. God does not promise to bless us materially or physically in this life if we're faithful to Him. The health and wealth gospel in this life is a false gospel. However, the health and wealth gospel ultimately is a true gospel. Nothing could be healthier than a full resurrection body that lasts forever in the new heavens and earth. And so our faith will result in that. (laughs) But it's a wrong view of eschatology. We call it over-realized eschatology to think that that's going to happen typically in this life. So this requires an eternal perspective. What we do here for God does not help us here to live more comfortably. Some of us have physical ailments. They worry us. It produces fear. It's tough. It's hard when you're suffering physically not to be affected by it. All of us who had physical ailments that go on for a while, it's really hard. And we've got to meditate and let Scripture just get into every nook and cranny of our spiritual lives so that we'll respond rightly and remember that this is not our only life. It's a testing ground for the next life. And um, now that that's hard. I realize that's hard. When we're faithful in our witness, we sometimes suffer in various ways from those who reject our witness. We talked about that a little bit. Social persecution, business persecution. This idea in Revelation 11, 1-2 apparently had an impact on a man named Polycarp, one of its original leaders. He was probably a member and maybe even an elder of the church at Smyrna when the church received this letter and this book. He was a pupil and disciple of John. Faithful unto death, this leader was burned at the stake in 155 A.D. He'd been asked to say, Caesar is Lord, brought to the stadium where a Roman proconsul was. The Roman proconsul urged him, saying, Swear and I'll set you free, reproach Christ, honor Caesar, pledge your life to him. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years have I served Christ. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? By the way, as we're reading this, how would you respond? When the proconsul pressed him, the old man answered, Since you're urging me in vain that I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and you pretend not to know who and what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. A little later, the Roman governor answers, I have wild beast at hand. To these, I will throw you unless you honor Caesar. Afterward, Polycarp said, and the Roman governor said to Polycarp, I'll cause you to die by fire since you're not afraid of the wild beasts if you don't change your mind. But Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Bring forth what you will. Soon afterward, the people began to gather wood and Polycarp was burned at the stake. That sounds like a pretty sad thing, and yes, it is sad. Sounds depressing. Ultimately, Polycarp overcame. You know, the end of the letters, not only does it say he doesn't hear, let him hear, but to the one who overcomes. People can overcome persecution, sin in their lives, and that is a victory. Remember to Smyrna, Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. That takes a lot of faith. Polycarp had it, do we? 
I think there's a time probably in our generation, maybe persecution will be coming. We already see Christians persecuted over their convictions about sexuality. We'll see if it increases. He had, Polycarp did, an eternal perspective that motivated him to endure present momentary affliction. His eternal perspective inspired him not to become so depressed by his circumstances that he could not express his faith and hope in God. It's not wrong to be sad about death because it often means separation from family members and friends. But in the midst of such temporary sadness, we can have hope that we'll be reunited and experience resurrection and identification with Jesus. But being faithful through suffering in our witness is more than being willing to suffer from people who reject our testimony. The invisible powers of darkness are at work in all kinds of various other ways that cause suffering. You think of Job. God permitted Job to take Job's possessions away, take his children away. How does he respond? Naked I came from the womb. Naked I'll return. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then God gives him permission, the devil, to uh, uh, attack Job's body. It becomes so bad that Job's wife, not exactly an encouraging help meet at this point, says, curse God and die. Job responds, you remember, shall we accept good from God and not also evil? It's a pretty strong statement. When we react faithfully to various calamities or situations of suffering, the world will take notice that we're not despairing. Some may want to know why. Then we can tell them the reason for the hope that's in us. We may be sad, but not despair. To despair is to lose hope in God. I I read the Puritans um, uh, consistently a little bit every day. And one of their continual statements is, in death. If it's not a real quick one, but if you know you're dying, it's one of the prime times to be a witness to the Lord. I think that's true. So verses 1 through 2 have emphasized God's presence with us, protects us spiritually through suffering. But now we want to ask, why does God want us to be assured of His protecting presence through suffering? The answer is given in verses 3 to 7. We'll look and focus in a beginning way at verses 3 to 4. It tells us why God wants us to be assured of His protecting presence through suffering. Verse 3, I'll grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, what's the point here? I think the point is this. God's presence with us, yes, protects us spiritually through suffering, Why? To empower our witness. To make our witness bold. It's not by accident that verse 3 starts talking about witnessing. It's because verses 1 through 2 are not unrelated to verses 3 to 4. Don't think that these are islands of independent thoughts. Witnessing comes out of being impelled by God's securing presence through suffering. We have nothing to fear according to Jesus' words. God's spiritually protecting presence encourages us to persevere through suffering in our witness. 
because we can be assured that He's with us every step of the way. His abiding presence with us gives us boldness to endure whatever suffering may bring, whether it's persecution or it's some sort of suffering, terminal cancer, whatever it may be. And we can tell others why we continue to trust in Him and not despair, but to trust Him as our guide and our shepherd. So these verses begin to tell us why God wants us to be assured of His protecting presence in the midst of suffering. That presence propels us to witness. Now, I've already mentioned the importance of being faithful in our suffering, verses 1 to 2, that John himself clearly sees perseverance through suffering being a witness is now clear here. Now, these two witnesses you'll especially notice here um, in verse 4. They prophesy for uh, 1,260 days. They're compared to trees and lampstands. You'll notice that fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them, in this manner he must be killed. And then notice, they have power to shut up the sky so it won't rain, and power over the waters to turn them into blood. I mean, so many people think that this is speaking of two individual prophetic witnesses that are just as supernatural, doing supernatural things. Actually, even more supernatural things. We have no prophets from whose mouth came fire. From heaven there came fire, but not from prophets' mouths. And whereas Moses could only turn the Nile into blood, they're turning all kinds of waters into blood. These are escalated Old Testament prophets if these are individual supernatural prophets. Now, many think that this is Moses and Elijah who was expected in early Judaism to come in the latter days. Or Moses and Enoch, or Enoch and Elijah. Some think it's Peter and Paul who both died under persecution according to tradition, and that they will arise. So many take this as individual prophets, and this is almost their telltale proof that you must take much of Revelation literally because this on its surface looks like it's individual's. But I have the audacity to disagree with that interpretation. (laughs) The church is symbolized by being called two witnesses who prophesied during the tribulation of the church age. Why do I say that? Because I want it to be true. It fits into my theology. No. Notice how our passage... Remember I said verses 1 through 2 are not independent from 3 to 4? Notice how they're not independent. Verse 3 says we have witnesses who also, by the way, notice they their witness is for three and a half years. There's one link with the three and a half years earlier, which I think is the church age. But not only that, notice verse 4, notice on the overhead here that it is, uh, there are two lampstands. How can that help us identify the witnesses? Anybody? It's classroom now. Why are they churches? Revelation 1 and 2, where the seven lampstands are clearly defined as the churches. And probably it's not just the seven historical churches. Seven is the number of completeness. Just like there are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven signs and seven bowls. and Many other sevens. For completeness, this represents the universal church. But the point is, it's the church. Now, 
Remember yesterday I said that there are a few images in Revelation that John does define them. This is one of them. And when they occur again, these defined symbols, when they occur again without explanation, should we not let the earlier explanation interpret the latter explanation? Let Scripture interpret Scripture, especially let the author interpret the author. I think so. The lampstands are the church. But my polite interlocutor would say, who's a literalist, why only two? Doesn't say sevens, two must be individuals. Why would there be two? Anybody? Classroom again. Two was the number of witnesses in the Old Testament by which you had to have two witnesses to convict someone of a crime, especially a capital crime. But especially, do you remember the letters, the churches in chapters 2 to 3? There are only two churches that Christ does not rebuke. All the others he rebukes severely or significantly. There are only two, Smyrna and Philadelphia. This represents the remnant faithful church that we were talking about. That's why there are two. Concept of the remnant. Begins early in the chapters of Genesis, and it never stops. That's why I don't think Romans 11.26 is talking about the salvation of the majority of Israel. The theology of the remnant never stops. But Dr. Schreiner and I are going to have a meal. We'll talk further about that. Um, so, so we see that the temple idea continues in the form of the lampstands, which were a crucial part of the holy place in the temple. So this temple idea of the three and a half years continues. So there's not two literal individual prophets. But why? That's interesting. The lampstands are the churches, but we still haven't answered. Why does John, why does God apply the image of lampstands to churches? So you haven't fully interpreted the symbol if you just say, well, Lampstands equal churches. You've got to say, why? So my wife always asks, why does the, you're pointing out that Daniel 2 is used in, in Revelation 1, so what difference does that make? The church is a light of witness to the world. And it's God's city on a hill, light. It's God who is fueling that fiery witness for notice. What chapter 4 says. Look at chapter 4. It's amazing. Chapter 4, God's sitting on His throne. That's the beginning vision in verses 2 through 4. And then verse 5, and from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The seven lamps of fire. In the Old Testament, the lamps are put on the lampstands. So you got lampstands, but you got to put the lights on them. And the lamps of fire are what? The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, the fiery spirit that came down at Pentecost, the flames of fire that innervates, fuels our witness. Without that, we have no witness. Proverbs 16, 15 says, In the light of a king's face is life. If this is true of earthly kings, how much more with we who are spiritual kings and priests? The two olive trees uh, that verse 4 talks about. These are not just two lampstands, but olive trees. It comes out of Zechariah 4, 3 to 14, where the olive trees represent a king and a priest. Another way of emphasizing 
these are kings and priests. That the witnesses of the worldwide church is clear, not only because the lampstand symbolized churches, but because verse 9 says the whole world will look on these two witnesses when they've been killed at the end of time. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three days and a half and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. The literalist approach to this is, well, this is because of technology. Everybody will have their televisions and they'll see these two individual witnesses persecuted. So you have to ask, does John really have in mind the technology of the 21st century? Or maybe you could say, well, John didn't know, but God did. All things are possible, but not all things are probable. And I think that the probability is that because the church is worldwide, not two individuals, this is the worldwide church who is persecuted. Everybody from the world will see them persecuted. We've already talked about how seven is the church universal. And the two is the remnant church throughout the world. I got a, looked at a Christmas card one time. It quoted verse 9. It says um, in verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over these dead prophets and make merry and they'll send gifts to one another. That was a Christmas card. <laughs> right doctrine from definitely the wrong text. Verse 7, that this is the church and not two individuals is evident from verse 7. Look at verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. See that in verse 7. What's that? Look at that phrase there. End of the verse. Beast will make war with them, overcome them. That comes out of Daniel 7.21. Dorinda, I'm going to say what it means. That's my wife's name. So what difference does it make? That is a prophecy from Daniel 7.21 to make war with them and overcome them. It's about a beast that's not individual. It represents the state, a persecuting state that attacks the covenant community. Not just a few individuals, you see. So this this is a corporate thing as well. So the number of reasons we see that this is corporate. This is the universal church. People from around the world witness this. And um, this is something that um, is a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament that predicts persecution of a group. So also, the faithful church will provide evidence at the end of time for the judgment of the ungodly by testifying the ungodly that the ungodly rejected their witness. Now, how are we empowered to witness in the midst of our suffering then? Well, these verses, verses 3 to 4, tells us. Notice the end of the verse. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. That phrase, stand before the Lord of the earth, is a repeated phrase in the Old Testament. Guess where it comes from? The priest stands before the Lord of the earth in the temple. This is another emphasis of the priest in the temple. In the presence of God, it's the presence of God again. It reinforces that notion. The presence of God impels us to witness Only his presence could do that. 
Verses 5 to 6 say that our witness in the midst of suffering is that of like, like Moses and Elijah. What does it mean in verse 5, if anyone wishes to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and consumes their enemies? See that? Well, the description is based on 2 Kings 1.10. When soldiers of the evil king of Israel tried to capture Elijah, and you remember, God sent fire from heaven and consumed them each time they came. Is that what's talking, being talked about here? But the fire comes from the mouth of, of an individual. I think, again, it's symbolic. We should expect that from the programmatic statement of verse 1 of chapter 1. In fact, everywhere else in Revelation, let's let Revelation interpret Revelation now. This is a specific example of Scripture interpreting Scripture, letting an author interpret an author. When you get the five-fold phrase of proceeding out of the mouth, five words in Greek and in English, it's never literal. For example, in Revelation 1.16 and 19.15, it says, Jesus has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. It's clearly an image of judgment. He's not thinking here, literally, of Jesus with a sword in his mouth. It's absurd, isn't it? It's an image of judgment. Revelation 16, 13 to 14, frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon, the uh, beast and the false prophet. And these frogs resulted in deceiving people. The frogs are images of deception, images of judgment, ultimately coming from powers of evil. In chapter 9, in verse 17 and 18, I'll just read verse 18. Clearly a figurative text. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeds out of their mouths, out of these beastly mouths. So what we have here is judgment is coming out of their mouth. And I think the point is that the witnesses' mouths pronounce judgment that will take place at the last judgment, and these witnesses are providing witness at the last judgment that their witness was rejected, and that will become part of the basis for their final judgment. And in that sense, it's a it's kind of already an eschatological witness, isn't it? Those who reject, and this is sobering, but those who reject our witness and are intractable to the day of their death, that rejection in our presence really begins their end time judgment. They're, they're waiting in the jail, ultimately, in their intractability. Verse 6 further describes prophetic authority and witnessing as being generally like that of Moses and Elijah. Remember that Elijah prophesied that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't? Moses prophesied that water would become blood. In both cases, these were miracles in response to the rejection of the witness of the prophets by kings, whether Pharaoh or Ahab. And they persevered. Now, we as Christian witnesses do not have the same literal miraculous power as Moses and Elijah, but we have a similar power in our word of witness. Our lives are to be patterned after that of Moses and Elijah. How so? Again, their witness was rejected by the unbelieving world. And our witness, quite frankly, often is rejected. It's only a remnant who come. So that that is our mission. Now, this doesn't mean that 
Elijah and Moses and we will be perfect believers if we're faithful. Remember, Elijah had fits of depression. Remember what he says in uh, 1 Kings 19.4? It's enough now, Lord. Take my life. He wants to die. How many of us have said that? We want to die because of some suffering or a business calamity or whatever. But above all, the pattern of the witness's career in verses 1 through 11 is meant not just as a replica of Moses and of Elijah, but of Jesus. For remember, he was a faithful witness. Antipas was a faithful witness who died in Revelation 2. He was a light to the world. We're lights as lampstands. Secondly, Jesus' witness was three and a half years literally. That becomes figurative for our three and a half year witness. Thirdly, his witness resulted in satanic opposition and suffering. So does ours. Fourthly, his witness ends in violent death. And at the end of the church age, the corporate body of Christ will go underground and in that sense suffer a death. I think that's what's being talked about here when it says the beast will kill them at the end. The corporate church, they go underground. As in various places like China and and, and Russia, uh, the true church has gone underground at various points. What will happen in the future is the whole worldwide church will go underground. Fifthly, unbelievers rejoiced at Jesus' death. They rejoice, they'll rejoice at the demise of the church and do throughout the church age when uh, the church appears to fail. And finally, Jesus was vindicated through resurrection. So will be. And actually, it's the main point. Look at verse 11. After three days and a half, the breath of life from God came into them. They stood on their feet. Great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. They heard a voice saying, from heaven, come up here. They went into heaven in the cloud. Their enemies beheld them. So they're vindicated by resurrection as Jesus was. The world's verdict on Jesus was reversed by resurrection. The world's verdict on us as being not in the right will be reversed by our resurrection. And then the beginning of judgment is described. In that hour, there's a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified, gave glory to the God of heaven. I think this is a giving of glory that's forced. It's not true repentance. So God's presence with us protects us spiritually through pain to empower our proclamation. That's the idea. Unbelievers may react badly because we remind them that they have no hope. And this can torment their conscience. I think that's what's in mind. If you'll notice um, at verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, they'll send gifts to one another. Now notice, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. At other times we suffer, maybe not from persecution, as I've said, it may be other reasons. Ultimately, to one degree or another, our sin may be involved, or and likely to one degree or another, the work of the powers of evil are involved in the case of Job. But even here, uh, suffering, Jesus relates to the work of the devil, ultimately under the hand of God, as Luther said. The devil's on a chain, and God yanks it here and there in his usual black and white way. He's very uh, uh, convicted in the way he says things. Death is a tragedy that touches all of us. Many of us have known people who have died. What's our reaction? Paul says about our loved ones who die in the Lord, do not grieve as the rest who have no hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And it's related and linked to the preceding verse which says, behave properly toward outsiders. See, one of the ways we can behave properly toward outsiders outsiders, is not 
losing hope at the death of those close to us. Because we're Christians. We believe there's something beyond death. Well, how would you answer my sister-in-law's question? I tried the best I could. I think the answer is the physical part of our temples have not been measured or guaranteed by God to be protected. God is guaranteed to protect us spiritually by His presence. Holy Spirit will fuel our witness. So here's basically what I, what I think the, the, the answer is to, to elaborate. She and we should be motivated each day until eternity because God has promised He'll always be with us until the end of the age. Matthew 28.20. In a question and answer session, I'd be happy to talk about Matthew 28.20. It is a temple text. The building of disciples there is the building of the temple. And that's why Jesus says, I'll be with you always. Secondly, further and secondly, each day as we come to Scripture, we imbibe Scripture, we pray and meditate over it. We begin to learn how much God has loved us. And 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. And thirdly, as we come increasingly to enjoy God, know Him better, trust in His loving purposes, we can trust Him increasingly to be our guide through each day. So God's presence with us protects us spiritually through suffering to empower our witness, leading to our vindication through resurrection. Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. If you don't have the Heidelberg Catechism, get it. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins, delivered me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and hence, therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. And I would add, sacrificially as a priest. I read a recent missionary report from India. It says, Brother Sadafir regularly shared his faith among members of India's Koya tribe in the thick forest of the Dantawata district of India. It cost him his life. Members of the Janata party and others came and said, if Sadafir keeps converting all your people to Christians all the people in the, in the Koya tribe, you're going to lose your culture. You don't want that. And so fearing the loss of their cultural identity, they began persecuting the pastor who pastored the church in uh, Sadafir's um, house, Sadafir uh, being a husband of a family. And then a knock came at the door, a mob came of some Koyas and some communist guerrillas, and they took Sadafir away, went into the forest, and uh, that was in the middle of the night. The, the wife follows uh, the next day. And um, they said, look, he's converting everybody to Christianity. And um, this has got to stop. No more. So they put him, they tied him to a tree and began to, to hit him with uh, bamboo sticks until his legs were unimaginably horrific looking. Then they killed him by piercing him with a three-pronged spear that was a symbol of Hinduism. They left his body, uh, they kept his body uh, away from his wife and the police. They didn't want the police to hear about this. But then they said to his wife, if you promise uh, not to go to the authorities and, and burn him, that'll be the end of it. 
That was the end of the missionary report. How encouraging is that? In the context of Revelation 11, we know the full redemptive historical story. He, Satifir, who was judged to be in the wrong, will be vindicated by resurrection. He was laying a witness down. Would you and I be so bold? Let's pray. Father, be with us. Guide us. Convince us and assure us of your protecting presence as your temple that we would be secured through suffering spiritually and impelled by your tabernacling presence to boldly witness. Awaiting all the while our final resurrection in hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.